0: My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will take the truth of his word, the eternal truth about Jesus and his sacrifice, and apply it to every heart in this room, and worship would come forth with power in a way that maybe it hasn't for a while in your life. If you're good with that, lift your hand up. Okay, now stand up. Stand up. I always give you a chance to stretch before we get going. Let's lift our hands to the Lord and let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher of the church. We invite you. We lean into you. We open up our heart, our soul, our mind, our being to you. Would you take the truth of your word and apply it to every heart in this room and every heart listening online? Lord, I pray that you would not let a single soul escape. Without having eternal seed planted inside of their heart this day, I pray that Jesus, you would be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name. If you agree, say amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. Thank you so much. Title of my message is Why Worship in Heaven Fixates So Much on the Blood of Jesus. Why worship in heaven fixates so much on the blood of Jesus, and it does. When we see Jesus appear on the scene for the first time after he appeared to John, but in heaven, he comes on the scene, and what is he when he appears? In the center of the throne, there is the lamb. And he's not just a lamb who was slain. The Bible says that he's a lamb who has the fresh marks of slaughter on him. There's still blood running down him. That blood is still fresh. And everybody in heaven who's already presumably been there for a while is overwhelmed again and again and again singing new songs. You're worthy! Because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. You're worthy because you've overcome and you have given your life to purchase for God what he wants. And the worship in heaven explodes at the sight of the lamb whose blood is still alive. It's ever present. It's not a past event. In heaven, the sacrifice of Jesus is ever new and it's ever alive. And so worship is constantly springing up. Imagine yourself at the foot of the cross when he's there and he says, Father, into your hands I yield up my spirit. And he takes his last breath and he dies. And you're sitting there in awe of what just happened. And the centurion says, surely he is the son of God in heaven with your Lord. Every moment that you see him is going to be that moment, the living reality. Of what Jesus has accomplished and the power of his blood will be ever new and ever fresh. That's why new songs keep erupting in heaven. Did you notice that? They sang a new song. Why? Because they saw a new glimpse of the living lamb and of his sacrifice and of the power of it. If that becomes stale to us, we need a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because what worship is, is when the Holy Spirit takes the truth from His Word and He opens the eyes of our heart like we were singing tonight. And we see it, and there's an explosion from our heart that comes forth. Worthy is the Lamb. The power of the blood of Jesus is infinitely greater than what we have ever comprehended. I want us to see... More about that today. I believe that this message should make you deliriously happy. It should make you deeply hopeful. And it should make you desperately hungry for more of God. Because look, what the blood of Jesus has purchased for you, his people, and for me, is an ocean. But most of us, let's be honest, most of us have only tasted a drop and it's an ocean and I believe that the Lord is always calling to us by his spirit and saying come for more like there's more for you there's more freedom for you there's more power there's more of the reality of the living Christ for you in your life come for more there's an ocean out there and we say to God would you please give me 50 cents so I can get a coke and he's like Fort Knox is open to you It's open. The blood of Jesus is an ocean of provision and power and glory that we have only just tasted a little bit of. I want us to taste of it more. At the end of the service, we're going to take communion. I want it to be worship, not ritual. They don't have ritual in heaven. They have explosive worship because their hearts are on fire. Come on. I'm going to yell more than usual today. Let's just get over it. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. And we're going to read some verses out of Revelation as well. This is all through the Scripture. This is the center of our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read verse 2. And then we're going to read verses 18 and 19 to start out. So I want to give you four words that tell us why heaven is fixated on the blood of Jesus and on worshiping the Lamb of God. Four words because it makes it easier to remember. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Well, let's go back to verse 1 since it's in the middle of a sentence. Peter, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. I want you to notice that phrase because we're going to see it again. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you're familiar with it, most of the time the blood was sprinkled where? Sprinkled on the altar sprinkled on the mercy seat, sprinkled on the instruments of worship, the candlesticks, all of those things. It was mostly put on the altar. There's only three times in the Old Testament where people, individuals, were sprinkled with blood. And they each hold powerful revelation of what's happened to us. We're going to get there. Not right yet. So just remember that phrase, sprinkled with his blood. And look, look at verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile, empty, worthless, wasted way of life. The word means all of those things. Inherited from your forefathers. How many inherited, oh, empty, wasteful, foolish, stupid, idiotic life from your relatives and ancestors? Okay, those of you who are raised in a Christian home, thank God for that. I would put myself in that category. The pursuit of everything was about me, was about materialism, was about drawing attention to myself, a totally self-centered f- focus of attention, and it was wasted until God broke in and revealed the Lamb of God to my heart. From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, verse 19, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ notice the word redeemed in verse 18 because this is one of the ideas that is repeated throughout the Bible of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ so the first word is this rescue the word redeemed the word rescue the word ransom the word deliver the word purchase all of those things are used for what the blood of Jesus has done do you know Jesus bought you with his blood Like, I I do have to admit that I get amazed by people when they tell me, the Lord told me to do this, but I'm thinking about whether to do it or not. I'm like, really? I had a brother one time. I was driving with him, and he had multiple, multiple speeding tickets. If you have them, the Lord can forgive you. But he had multiple. So his insurance, he had at least 20. And we're driving up to a place for a conference for pastors and he told me, he said, Barry, I don't want you to drive because you'll drive too slow. I said, okay, you drive then. So he drove. He had his radar detector on the dashboard. We're going up I-95 through South Carolina. It goes off. I said, yep, I told you just when they got ya. Here comes the state trooper out from behind, pulls him over again, gets another ticket, number 21. And we start back on the road again. And he says to me, You know, I've talked to the Lord about this, and about this whole speeding thing and tickets, and I I just told the Lord I'm not going to do it. I was like, you told the Lord you're not going to do it? No, if if He's your Lord, you can't tell Him you're not going to do it. You say, yes, sir, how fast, how do I do it? Just as soon as you want, yes, sir. That's what the lordship of Jesus means. It's not optional. Lord, give me your advice and I'll wait and see if I have better advice. No, They aren't the ten suggestions, by the way. He's the Lord, right? We're purchased by him. And so these ideas are that he completely rescued us from a situation that we were powerless to get out of. So what did he deliver us from? He rescued us from slavery to sin. We were slaves of sin, every one of us, no matter how nice our upbringing was, no matter how um, good you think that you were compared to your peers. You were, the Bible says, we all were slaves of sin because those things were working inside of us. And you see this, don't you, parents, even in your little toddlers, when they go, they put their little hairy toe over that line. And they look at you and go, what are you going to do about it? That's sin in the heart. You know what that translates to later? That translates to that little boy, if that's left unchecked and unredeemed, beating his wife, stealing from his boss, shooting drugs in his arm, going to jail. That's what that rebellion in the heart equates to. There's sin inside. We were born and shapen in iniquity, David said, right? We were all fallen when we came out of the womb, and so those seeds take a while to come out, but we're all, we're slaves of sin. Like, this is one thing that I find, this is always a hard thing to preach. It never goes over well. I've preached it a lot of times, but, but preaching about the depravity of man and how Far off, and how crooked and how bent we were never preaches well because we all flatter ourselves in our own eyes and think that we're pretty good because we compare ourselves with Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. But the comparison is with Jesus, the comparison is with righteousness and with what we were created to be. So we were all slaves of sin. I want to read you this explanation by William Barclay. He's a Greek scholar, and he has a gift with drawing word pictures that I think is really helpful. So I want to read this to you. So basic is the hold of sin over man that sin is not merely an eternal power which exercises sway over man. It has gotten to the very fiber and center of his heart and his being until it occupies him as an enemy occupies unoccupied territory. The result is that we can be said to be slaves of sin. It is to be remembered that the power of the master over the slave was absolute. There was no part of life, no moment of time, no activity which was the personal property of the slave. He belonged to his master in the most total way, so man is totally under the domination of sin. Do you believe that's what the Bible teaches? Okay. We probably should go back and do another lesson before this. Okay, in your spare time, go back to Romans chapter 3 and start reading at verse 9 and read through verse 20. This is Paul's description of why he has to preach the gospel. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who speaks right. Their throat is an open grave where they're constantly spewing out lies and deception and corruption. You go, that, that, that wasn't me it was you before Christ. They may not have come out in all its fullness, but those seeds were inside of you, ready to pop forth. If there hadn't been the restraining factor of your parents' paddle, or of the failing report card, or of a policeman, those things would have popped out. That is in the heart of every person apart from Christ. We're slaves of sin, and he rescued us from our slavery. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3, this is a powerful indictment given by Paul, who was a Pharisee. And I want you to notice in verse 3, he includes himself in this. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and according to the law, his life was blameless. But he said this about himself as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Christianity is not an extreme makeover. It's a resurrection from the dead. He can't fix you. That's the message of the gospel. You can't fix yourself by all of your self-effort. And by, we can, we can uh, bring all of the best motivational speakers and try to inspire you. And it won't work because you're a corpse. And what you need is God himself to breathe the breath of life inside of you. And raise you from the dead and give you a new life and a new heart. That's what Jesus did in his blood. You were dead. You formerly walked. All of these yous here, by the way, if you're interested, are all plural. That means the whole bunch of you in Ephesus. Ephesus was a pretty high-level church of Revelation, right? All of you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What does that mean? The devil and his spirit dominated your life before you came to Christ and mine. Look, I I totally can testify to it. I mean, I could give you page after page of examples. I mean, my rap sheet would wrap around this building three times. That's the beauty of justification. Don't you see? We're justified by his blood. This is part of the thing. It's not just, oh, yeah, my sins have been forgiven, but all I did was ever, you know, stick my tongue out at my teacher. No, no, no. There's deep corruption in every part of our being before Christ rescues us and changes us that rebels against God. That's who we were. Finish reading. The spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, notice, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. This was our state. Like, for us to realize the power of what the blood did, we have to see where he brought us from. Right? There's a verse in Psalm 36, verse 2, that I think is applicable. It's talking about sinners, but I think even for us as believers, we forget. It says this. It says, the wicked flatters himself so much in his own eyes that he cannot see or hate his sin. That is human nature for us to go, actually, I'm pretty good. I compare myself to the weakness. Here's the basic deception. I compare my strengths to your weaknesses, and I go, I'm a pretty good person. That comparison is a fail. Jesus rescued us from our slavery to sin. There's a powerful picture in Leviticus chapter 14 where it talks about the leper. So leprosy, as you might know in Bible times, was basically incurable. And the lepers had to stay outside the camp. They couldn't be in where the people were at. They had to be outside. They couldn't come in where the temple was or with the people of God because those diseases were infectious and they were out there dying. So they're separated from God. They're separated from his worship. They're separated from all of their family, from their people. Their defilement is contagious. And so there's instruction there. If God intervenes and a leper's healed, they have to go to the priest and get it checked out to see if it's real. The priest goes out. He goes outside the camp, and here's what he's instructed to do. He takes a bowl. He fills it with fresh water. He takes two birds. The first bird, he breaks its neck and drains its blood into the bowl with the water. There's a piece of cedar wood in there. There's a scarlet piece of yarn in there. What would those remind you of? The wood, the scarlet yarn. It's not too hard to stretch and say they're symbolic of the cross that's coming. And so the priest examines him. He dips the cedar. He dips the yarn. He dips the other bird into the blood in the bowl. And then he sets the bird free. There was a substitute, right? This is a picture of the cross. This man's a leper. and then, what does the priest commanded to do? He's commanded to put his f- hyssop into the bowl, and he puts the blood. <laughs> he puts the blood on the leper. Imagine you got blood splattered on your face, on your clothes. You are sprinkled with blood. And then sin offerings are given. Why do you have to give a sin offering for a dude who's sick? Because leprosy is a perfect picture of what sin is like. It eats you from the inside until you're dead. It separates you from everything that's precious to you. It separates you from God and from God's people. That's exactly what sin does. And until we're sprinkled, and until the sacrifice is made for us, we're unclean. But Jesus rescued us from our slavery to sin. What else did he rescue us from? He rescued us from the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It is the just punishment that sin deserves, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That is justice. I I think a lot of times, honestly, recently, about all those social justice warriors that are out there crying out for justice for this and justice for that, and I'm like, I wonder if they really want real justice. Because real justice for everybody, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, is eternity in the lake of fire. That's real justice. I know that doesn't preach good either, but it's reality. That tells us the seriousness and the darkness of sin. We often play down the seriousness of sin, and because of that, the glorious bright light of the power of the blood of Jesus doesn't appear to us. I've used this example before, but it's the best one that I can think of, so I'll use it again. When I was a teenager, I used to be wild and go to rock concerts and do drugs and all that kind of crazy stuff. And so I went to a lot of rock concerts, and, he, and here's what would happen. Back in the day before there were cell phones, we tried to get as close to the stage as we could, and that's one reason why I have a hearing age today. Um, be honest with you, it's so stinking loud. The speakers are like 20 feet tall and massive stage. Standing up there, and all you can smell is, is marijuana smoke, and it's dark. They have all the lights out, and everybody's waiting for the band to come out on the stage. And we're standing there, dude, that's really cool, man. And, and then you start to hear some little sounds of instruments in the background. And all of a sudden, standing there, boom, there's torches of fire that blow up 30 feet into the air, columns of fire. And you're like, ah, it's, I mean, it's shocking. That is a good picture of what the grace of God should look like to us. In our darkness, in our total depravity, separation from God, the grace of God, the message of the gospel should come in like, boom, what just happened? I can see for the first time in my life. I was headed, Paul said he himself as a Pharisee was a child of wrath. He was destined for the lake of fire. Until, verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God, two most powerful words, but God, rescued from God's wrath. We, We don't need to go into all the details, although probably would be helpful for us to be more grateful people. Like, dude, I had a bad day because I got a parking ticket. And the Lord's like, but you escaped the lake of fire. Oh man God, why did I get a parking ticket? Darn I didn't get the job I wanted. What in the world? Complain. Come on. He's like, you escaped the lake of fire. That should elicit a lot of and you're going to be with me forever in my temple and in my presence. That should elicit a lot of gratefulness. Lord, all the hard things that I've experienced in my life. And honestly, can I tell you, people, let's, let's be honest. As Americans, we haven't experienced very much. We haven't. How can we not be infinitely grateful for the goodness of God? Like, we should be grateful for clean water For air conditioning, for washers and dryers, for napkins, for forks, for sanitary food, for publics. Come on, make a list a thousand long. We should be because it's the goodness of God to us. But more than all of that, how can we become? Seriously, like I, I ask myself this question. I'm not like I'm the dude that never complains. No. But how how do we honestly do it? We lose sight of the reality and of the truth of how amazingly good God has been to us. We forget when the flame exploded and we saw the light and the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to Jesus and we bowed the knee and we had a new heart and our life began to change from that moment forward. We forgot that we're on a trajectory to spend every moment, every second of our life in the immediate close presence of God. Oh, dude, but I got a parking ticket. Give it to me right now. Overflowing with thanksgiving. Overflowing. This is how we can tell if we see the blood of Jesus as it is, if it's a revelation in our heart, whether or not we're grateful and thankful people. That's real. We're rescued from God's wrath. You you only need to know two things about God's wrath, okay? Just two words. They're both in Hebrews chapter 10. One is terrifying, and the other is fury. That's all you need to know. The Bible explains it. Do you know of all of the references to Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, out of the 11 times that it's used in the New Testament, Jesus himself used it 10? Why? Because he was a hellfire bullhorn preacher? No, because he didn't want people to go there. You, you, Trust me, you, you don't want to go there. The blood of Jesus rescued us from that fate of eternity. Every day is a good day. Every day is a good day. Every day is a good day. My life is on that trajectory. How easy it is to get caught up with the little agitations of life. I'm not immune. But it reminds me, I need to turn my focus back to what happened when he spilled his blood on that cross. And he had me in his view. And he said, that little 15-year-old knucklehead, that's a complete moron. My blood's going to drip on him. I'm going to sprinkle him with my blood. And his whole trajectory of his life is going to turn. And he's going to spend eternity with me in the new Jerusalem. It's a good day! Sorry if you're not used to me yelling. He also rescued us. How are we doing? He rescued us from Satan's dominion and power. Wrote the verse with me, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him. There you go. They overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. That's the beginning point. The word of their testimony, they agreed with him and embraced him as Lord. And they loved not their life unto death. We usually leave that third part out. But this is what it means. Jesus, wherever you lead me, wherever you call me to go, even if that means, it's all good. Because the second, this is, this is Paul's focus, razor-sharp focus, for me to live is Christ. And to die is more of Christ. That's gain. As soon as I take my last breath and leave this body, I'm going to get my heart's desire. Dude, I mean, I'm trying to eat good because I don't want to die immediately until I finish my course. But I told the Lord, like, as soon as my time's up and my course is finished, I'm out of here. Because I'm living for my heart's desire in the presence of Jesus and the word to the overcomer in the church of Philadelphia is I will make him to be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he'll never go out or move from that spot and that's me. Come on. be like the 144,000 and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I just want to be with Him. I just want to see Him. He's my heart's desire. He's captivated my affections and my longings. I want to be with Him. He rescued me from Satan's dominion. Colossians 13 said that he has transferred us. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we were being dominated by darkness, evil, and the enemy. And Jesus said, no, you're out of there. Now you're coming into the kingdom of my love and embrace for you. We've been rescued. The blood has rescued. This is why we as Pentecostals plead the blood. Have you ever heard anybody plead the blood? Okay, let's talk about it for just a minute. Because I'm that guy that always asks the question. You can ask guys on Monday morning. I'm the guy that always asks that question. Where do you find that in the Bible? Do you know the history of pleading the blood? You know when that really started? It started at Azusa Street in the Pentecostal revival in Los Angeles in 1906. There came a tremendous um, emphasis in that revival on worship, but the worship was all centered around the blood of Jesus. They sang songs about the blood of Jesus for hours on end, magnifying him. And people that would go in there saying, like, I've never been in a place where they worshiped so much about the blood of Jesus and talked so much about it. Why was that? Because the Holy Spirit came and he brought the atmosphere of heaven into a place. And they saw the lamb. And they're like, your blood, Jesus, set me free, rescued me, pardoned me, forgave me. I stood before the judge. This is justification. Love that picture. Justification is a legal word, and it means that all of your debt was canceled by the judge. I stood before the judge of the universe on the day that I received Jesus Christ. He had a rap sheet. I was only 15 years old. Some of you got saved much later than that, so your rap sheet might have been longer than mine. Mine was pretty long because I was a complete idiot. But that rap sheet, he calls me before the throne, or, or before his tribunal as a judge, and I stand there, and he's looking at my rap sheet, and I go, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm dead. He takes his gavel, and he says, not guilty, because this Man, my son, bore every one of your debts that's on this rap sheet. He took every one of them. All 10 million, every one of them. Every time, you were crooked, perverted, wasted, stole. Yeah, like, It's corrupt. I mean, my parents were good to me. I stole from them all the time. Idiot. I'm proud of it. But God... And I canceled that. All those times where you stole money from your mom's purse, I forgave you for that. I canceled that. All those times where you pulled your fake ID and went out drinking, I forgave you for that. All those times where you you fill in the blank, I canceled that sin. Like we need to feel the weight of, Of the forgiveness, of the remission of sins that comes from the blood of Jesus. It doesn't just cleanse the external things that people see. Here's the thing. When you're really forgiven to the core and it goes down to the fiber of your being, like Barclay described, our slavery to sin was down at the very fiber and the core of our being. But we've been cleansed now to that same degree, to the very depth and core of our being. And it not only forgives our sin in a judicial sense that we're not going to pay the penalty, but it cleanses our conscience to where the guilt and the shame is taken away. I can't talk about my past and I don't feel ashamed. Why? Because he wasn't ashamed to bear it. and He wasn't ashamed to pour his blood upon me and wash it away. And he cleansed me. Listen to me the cleansing of Jesus with his blood goes down to the depth of the fiber of every part of your being. Washes you clean. It's powerful. Here's the whole message of the Old Testament. All of the sacrifices. Here's the message that's emphasized over and over again in the book of Leviticus. If you did your Bible reading this year, how many read the book of Leviticus this year? Praise God, there's three. That's awesome. Get start. Here's what you find in the book of Leviticus. There's powerful things in there. I just gave you that one example of the leper being cleansed. Here's the message. Sin is so serious that somebody has to die for it. That's the message. Sin is not a trifle. Rebellion against God is so serious. Somebody has to die for that sin. It's either going to be you or your substitute. You're either going to be the bird whose neck is broken and your blood's poured in the bowl, or you're going to be the one that gets dipped in the blood and you fly free. Rescue is the first word. We'll move a little faster, maybe. Second word is covenant. Jesus says, In the institution of the Lord's Supper on the night before he was going to the cross, he was betrayed. This is the new covenant in my blood. We're starting a new covenant. Here's the second time that the people in the Old Testament are sprinkled with blood. Exodus chapter 24 put those verses up on the screen, I want to read this to you, really powerful. Exodus 24 verses 4 through 8 says this, they're at Sinai and Moses is going to make a covenant between God and the people and here's what the Lord tells him to do, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, these are his commandments, then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. He took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do it, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, This is the covenant that the Lord makes with you. This is the covenant that the Lord makes with you. They're splattered with blood. They've got blood all over their clothes, on their face, and in their hair. What's the point? This covenant is serious. Somebody had to die to make this covenant. And now that blood is on you. And so the seriousness of this covenant bond between you and God is made. His blood is on you. Peter says, you've been sprinkled. Picture yourself. Like when we stand in heaven, do you think that we're going to have spots of the blood of the Son of God on us from where we sprinkle? I don't know. That would be awesome. We've been sprinkled with his blood. We're in covenant with him. God binds himself to us in covenant, and he binds us to himself in covenant. It's a new covenant in my blood. What is this new covenant? Here's the glory of it. Guys, this is This is glorious. The blood of Jesus is not just powerful to forgive our sins. It's powerful, and its power goes all the way into eternity. It is the thing that works in us and brings us to the place that God has destined for us to be, the place of perfection. The things that concern us, the power of the blood of Jesus Jesus perfects us. So I lost my train on the pleading the blood, right? So I'm coming back to that now. So get used to it, me losing my train of thought. But the... Pleading the blood. Where do we get that? It happened in Azusa Street. Why? Because they were emphasizing the blood of Jesus. So here's the question. What do I think about pleading the blood of Jesus? I do it all the time. How do you do that? Because there's no scripture for it. There's no example in scripture. But the scripture is full of the power of the blood. And pleading the blood is just shorthand for saying, God, I put my faith in what Jesus did when he conquered the devil, when he forgave my sin, when he took away all the legal ground for the enemy to be in my life. I put my faith in that blood. But it's a lot shorter to say, I plead the blood. It's not a formula. It's an expression of faith in what Jesus did. So I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I plead the blood of Jesus over my children when they're being harassed by the enemy. I plead the blood of Jesus over my mind when I'm being harassed by the enemy with all the chatter. I plead the blood of Jesus over my life when I feel something going on that isn't good and I'm not sure what it is. But I want Jesus to come, and I am acknowledging to him by pleading his blood. I belong to you. You bought me with your blood, so keep me for yourself. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. So powerful. I want you to see this. This is the power of the blood. A lot of us are like, yeah, I've been saved, and my sins have been forgiven, but I still stumble around in the darkness And I can't seem to get it right. Here's the power of the blood. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. So good. Oh, my goodness. It's so powerful. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. You know what that tells me? The power that was in the blood because of the perfect life that it came from had the power within it to raise Jesus from the dead. He couldn't stay dead. His blood was so powerful. The living blood is what caused him to be raised up from the dead. Number uh, Verse 21. That blood of the eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing, to do His will, working in us. Say, in us. in us. Working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what this just said? Like I know you guys don't because you'd be going, yes! The power of the blood of Jesus is equipping us, working inside of us what is pleasing to the Father, It's actually shaping in us to make us to want to do His will and empowering us to do His will. It's shaping us on the inside to make us Christ-like. This is happening. He said it's the blood of the eternal covenant that's doing this. Like, the blood didn't just end the moment you said the sinner's prayer. The power of the blood is continually working inside of us as we put our faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made. He's transforming us into the thing that we should be. You go, man, I've struggled with this over and over again, with this porn, with this other addictive habit, with this criticism, with this critical spirit. Whatever it is, this is what I've learned to do, okay? It's just me. You take it or leave it. I just take my hide, and I lay it on the ground before the Lord, and I say, Lord, here I am. You see this stuff that's inside of me that I can't reach. I want to reach it. I want to grab it out, but I can't reach it. You see it. I'm asking you, through the power of the blood of Jesus, through the working of the Holy Spirit in my life, that you would go down inside of my heart and my soul, and that you would take the crooked places and make them straight again. It's not magic, it's faith. My faith is in this, and I'll quote him this verse, and I'll quote him Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, which says, Through one sacrifice, Jesus Christ has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. Through one. So what does that tell me? The power of to perfect our lives in Christ Jesus and to make us everything that we're supposed to be and to break off all of that old life and all of that old man. The power to do that, I'm not saying it happens overnight, but the power to do that is resident in his blood. And we need to put our faith in that blood. Take your heart. This is what I always encourage people. Take your heart and lay it before the Lord. Say, Lord, look at this. I acknowledge this. This is ugly this critical spirit that's in me is ugly, it's dark, I hate it, I want it out. I lay my heart before you, and I'm asking you, and I will take this scripture as a sword, and I'll write them on cards, and I'll take them before the Lord, and I'll read them. I'll lay on my back, and I'll read them to the Lord. Lord, you said that through your one sacrifice, you will forever have perfected me, and I believe that you're working that in me right now. I acknowledge my own inability to make myself what? I'm supposed to be, but I acknowledge your total ability to do that through the eternal sacrifice. It's still, the blessing. Listen, listen, the blood's still speaking. It's still powerful. When you get to heaven and you see the lamb, you're going to go, whoa! He looks like he's freshly slaughtered. The power of his blood. I'm telling you. Take your weaknesses and your crookedness. Acknowledge them before the Lord and take those into your prayer closet and take the scriptures that promise you what he's done in the power of his blood. Sometimes when I'm tired and I've been going over this for weeks on end, I'll just hold the card up to him. I'll say, Lord, you know, this is what I mean. This is what I'm talking about right here, and I believe you're doing it. I want to tell you something, testify. I'm very far from perfect, but I want to testify. There's been a lot of crookedness. When Jesus found me, I was as twisted as a pretzel. And now there's actually some straight parts to me. We're making progress. How did that happen? The power of his blood. He didn't just forgive my sins and leave me as a twisted pretzel. Come on. He's working in me by the power of his spirit to change me. Covenant. Covenant. He rescued me. I'm in covenant. Number three. This is so good. I don't know if y'all are getting happy, but I, I know I am. Number three. The power of the blood. Access. Do, do you realize how amazing it is that we can go into the presence of God anytime we want, boldly? Do you realize how crazy that is with a holy God? Here's part of our problem is that most of us haven't really ever had any real deep encounter with the holiness of God that scared us out of our skin, like Isaiah did. You know, Isaiah, probably the holiest man in all of Israel, he had prophesied to four different kings. He's an elder statesman prophet, but when he gets caught up into the throne room of God, the first thing he sees is, I'm unclean, I'm going to die right now. That's what he cries out. When he says, woe is me, a lot of translations translate that as woe means I'm dead. I'm going to die right now. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. What does that mean? God who is perfect light. In him there is no darkness. John said this is the message we've heard from him, 1 John 1, 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We don't know what that's like. Because we have lots of darkness and dark spots in us, when we get into the, per- the presence of perfect, absolute, perfect light, that there is no flaw, no crookedness, it's overwhelmingly, it's terrifying. Ask everybody that came into the presence of Jesus. John in the first chapter of Revelation—he's the guy who used to lay his head on Jesus's chest, right? Oh, John, tell us what—who it is that's going to betray you. You, you? You're closest to Jesus, like he's your homeboy. Lean your head over on his chest. But when Jesus came as the glorified Son of God in the book of Revelation, John took one look at Him and fell over like a dead man. God's holiness is overwhelming. It's incredible. It's such a miracle that we can go into the presence of God. Do we realize how much of a miracle this is? I want to read you some scriptures just to kind of reinforce this, okay? Just a scriptural barrage. Notice the phrase that gets repeated in these verses. I'm not going to tell you the verses. If you want this, you can come and take a picture of it with your phone. Notice the phrase, so that he will not die. The ephod shall be on Aaron when he ministers. That's the whole vest that he wears. And its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord. So that he will not die. You shall make them linen breeches. That's underwear. To cover their bare flesh, they shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and his sons when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place. So they do not incur guilt and die. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. At the door of the tent of meeting, moreover, after you are anointed as a priest, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord. So that you will not die. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, do not uncover your heads or remove the turban or tear your clothes so that you will not die. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. Do not drink wine or strong drink when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. That passage out of Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's two sons had just been struck dead, and they're laying on the floor in the altar there because they didn't obey the Lord and how they were offering the fire. They took it from the wrong place because they thought, oh, what's the difference? Fire's fire. And they saw what the holiness of God is like. No. You don't rebel against me and make your own way. That's not okay. Bam, dead. And his two boys laying there on the floor, dead, struck by the Lord. And Moses tells Aaron, you better not try to pick them up. And if you go out of here, you're dead. Because the anointing oil is on you. And if you leave here and disobey the Lord, you're going to drop dead too. We we don't understand who we're dealing with here. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they have approached the presence of the Lord and died, tell your brother Aaron he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. He shall put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the ark. Otherwise, he will die. If he goes into the mercy seat to offer the blood, and the cloud of incense hasn't covered the mercy seat, he can't even look at the mercy seat or he's dead. The Levites shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment. Man, I wonder what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Dead. Or they will die. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the Ark to keep it as a sign against these rebels, that you may put an end of their grumbling against me, so they will not die. But the Levites shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, or they both, you, Aaron, and them, will die. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. But you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel, or you will die. What do you make of that? We glibly say, oh, yeah, I'm just coming into the presence of the Lord. Do you even understand who we're coming in the presence of and who we're talking about and how amazing this is? Like, seriously, people, we're dealing with the same God. If you don't have your underwear on, you're dead. For real. He's holy. We don't get what that means. He's other, but he's perfect light. He doesn't tolerate and cannot tolerate sin in any form or shape. But now, Hebrews 10, 19, you know the verses. through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, but if the Levites even have a peak, they're dead. Yeah, but we have confidence to By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what the best way to honor the blood of Jesus is in your life? I believe this. The best way for us to honor the blood of Jesus and His power is to live our lives in such a way that we partake of the fullness of all that it provides. We have access to this holy, sovereign All-powerful God to come into his presence with confidence and boldness because the blood of Jesus did such a thorough work in cleansing you (laughs) from all your sin that when you go into the presence of perfect light, it doesn't kill you. We should thank the Lord on our knees every day your blood. Imagine having to face this God on judgment day without the blood of Jesus covering you. Everybody in heaven has a robe that they wear and it's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you don't have that robe, judgment day is going to be fury and terror. Now, It's going to be the welcoming arms of Abba. What in the world is this covenant that we have? So it seems to me like the best way we could honor the blood of Jesus is to press into everything that it provides for us. Yes? Yes? Let's press into everything to provide. Oh, I mean, I hate going to prayer meetings. It's so darn boring. Is there somebody in the mic? Blah, 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 blah. Why don't you take the blood in before the presence of the holy, all-powerful, sovereign God and say, here I am in the name of your son, not in my own name. <clears throat> Come on. Prayer meeting was never meant to be boring. It wasn't boring for the Levites. It wasn't boring for the sons of Aaron. They were like, dude, listen, if the bell stopped ringing, tie a rope around my ankle and pull me out. You know, that's tradition in the Jewish history is that they would tie a rope around their leg because if the high priest went in there, who's going to go after him to get him out if he dies? Because if you go in there, you're dead. There's going to be a pileup. <laughs> so we're going to have a rope around your ankle, and if the pomegranate bell stop tinkling when you're in there, we're like, uh-oh, Pull him out! You, you and I can go into that place before the throne of grace where we can receive mercy and help in our time of trouble. My prayer so boring. Probably one good view of the holiness of God like Isaiah had would cure us of all kinds of boredom. We need to be cured of our boredom. Why do we have to be entertained and excited or something's not good? Why can't we be in awe and wonder at the God that we're dealing with and come and humbly bow on our knees and say, God, because of the blood of Jesus, you hear me? What a miracle. And I'm praying now. For my daughter, for my brother, for my sister, for this situation. And I know we can pray like Jesus prayed. Lord, I know that you hear me. I know that you always hear me. Because there's a blood that covers us. It opens the way for confident and bold access. Come on. Let's upgrade our prayer life a little bit here. What in the world? How are we going to explain this to the Lord when we stand before him and he goes, hey, actually, um, these things are good, but I have this against you. Like, why were you such a prayerless life? When I provided complete and total access to you, in every moment, in every second, you can come freely and boldly before the throne of grace. What is up with that? Come on. I don't want to have to answer that question. I won't to have to answer that question. This is how we honor the blood of Jesus. We embrace and take advantage of everything that it provides for us. That's how we honor his blood. We don't just sing about it, we do sing about it. I love to sing about it. But we take advantage of everything that it provides. Come on. Take the crooked areas of your soul that have been beaten and twisted through your life experiences. And take those before the Lord because his blood promises a better thing for you. He can take the crookedness of your pretzel soul like mine was. And he can straighten those things out again. And he can make you love what you once hated and hate what you once loved. Come on. It's the power of the blood of Jesus. And so now, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 5, you won't turn there, but he says, you have been made priests. You've been made priests to minister spiritual offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. There's such an ocean. Like, we can go into the presence of this holy God And actually give him worship. I said worship. That is acceptable to him and is beautiful to him. And that he loves. It is like a fragrant aroma to him. And he breathes it in. God, I love that. How can you do that when you're so twisted and dark and bent? Because the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled on us. And he washed away the guilt and the power of our sin. Number four, identity. Rescue, covenant, access, identity. Revelation chapter one, we'll read a couple of passages here in Revelation. I love them. I could read them every single day and never tire. They're so powerful. Revelation one, five and six. We're getting ready to land the plane. We're going to do communion here in just a couple of minutes. Revelation chapter one, verse five and six. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us. It's present tense. His love is constantly moving towards us. The Lord's love now in Christ Jesus is chasing you down to kiss you on the lips. Did you hear what I said? His love is pursuing you. That's what grace means. It's moving. He loves us and released us, released us from our sins by His blood. And He made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever. And then look at chapter 5 of Revelation 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. I'm in that number. I'm in that number. He purchased me. Jesus bought me. He looked at the little twisted crooked 15-year-old and goes, I want that one. Do you know the word redeem and the word purchase here is the word, it's the actual word that they use for buying slaves out of the slave market. That's the actual Greek word. He purchased me out of the slave market. I was a little slave. And Jesus said, give me that one. I want him. And he pointed to you and he said, give me that one. I want him. He wanted me. Dude, take all of my rejection and stuff it in a paper bag. He wanted me. Come on. This stuff rocks me. How do you deal with rejection of people and the fear of man? Well, this is really the main way. I'm like, Lord, I know I'm probably a total doofus, but you you wanted me. You, You wanted me. And you chose me for yourself because you wanted me. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. We're priests. First Peter 2 9, he said, You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own special possession and treasure. That is now our identity. You, you hear what I'm saying? This is our identity, and our life throughout eternity is going to be ministering to the Lord what He desires. I want to just make one f- comment before we do communion here. Ephesians chapter 5, you're familiar with it, this is part of identity. L- listen, listen to me. Jesus loves His church. He loves His church. He treasures His church. He cherishes. The Bible says that He gave Himself up for His bride and that He cherishes. No one ever yet hated His own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Can I tell you something? The way that we interact with each other should reflect that we recognize that Jesus gave his blood for you. He gave his blood for you. I've had seasons in my life, and I won't go into too many of the details, where I got into a really dark place because I've always been, I don't want to say always, but mostly in my spiritual life since I've been a Christian for 40 plus years now. It's crazy. I've been pretty hangry where I can be kind of edgy and and I'm always reaching for more and I'm always wanting to say, Lord, where's the miracles? Where, where's the reality of what I'm seeing in this word? Like, what's going on? I'm, I'm kind of edgy. You've got to pick that up. Um, so I've kind of lived that way. But there's been a couple of seasons in my life where I got into a dark place where I began, in my own deception, to blame my own edginess and not seeing the fullness of everything that I see in that word on the church. And, and projecting that on the church. And in, in, I don't just mean the organization, but I mean, it ends up being the people, whatever you call it. And so my attitude toward the church was unhealthy as could be. Like, I did not view my brothers and sisters and the church world as a whole as being those that Jesus cherished so much that he poured out his life blood for. I, I thought that the church was a harlot and sucked. And I told the Lord so. I did, and this is some of the hardest chastening I've ever received from the Lord because he didn't like it. Um, I was reading my Bible, and I was reading Ephesians chapter 5, and I went reading it out loud like I do sometimes, and, and I said, no one ever yet hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it even as Christ does the church, and I had my Bible in my hand, and I literally turned my eyes up just like this, and I said, you cherish the church? She's a harlot. Whew, I don't want to repeat that, what happened to me. But like the Lord, he, he whooped my butt. The Holy Spirit, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, like where he, he really did, really bad. He said to me, yes, I do. I poured out my blood for her. And if you're ever going to speak for me to her, you are going to have to cherish her too. And I was like, I said, Lord, here's another crookedness that we need to deal with right here. Because I projected on the church body as deficient, whatever as she may be, Jesus still poured his blood out for her. And I have no right, the reason Jesus can correct the churches in the book of Revelation and the letters and rebuke them is because he died for them. I haven't died for them. And they're not my servants. And so I need to be part of the answer instead of part of the problem. Here's where the deception comes in. In my own heart, I'm, I'm talking about myself now. Maybe this helps some of you guys who are kind of edgy and, you're, you know, revival chasers and all that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's always been my history. You, what you do is you look in the mirror and you go, what the heck are you doing about it? If you think that the church is all this sucks, then what are you doing to fix it? How are you helping it? So that's step number one. Step number two is turn your eyes back to Jesus and go, God, I'm part of the problem. And I need you to fix me, and I need you to help me to build up the bride that you shed your blood for, that you cherish and you love. A lot of times before I preach, and honestly, the Lord knows this is the truth, I pray, God, help me to speak in such a way that it demonstrates that I cherish these people that you died for, because I fear the Lord. If you start messing with his bride, he will hurt you. He hurt me in a nice way, not permanently, but he, he, he doesn't go for that. Look, you, you know that. I worked at a job one time where my boss, my, Diane and I worked there together, and my boss said some kind of insult towards her, called her an airhead. I was like, oh my gosh, you did not say that to my wife. <laughs> I went in there and had a meeting with him, and I said, you know what? You will never talk like that to my wife again. Like, oh, I'm out of here right now. This will not happen. He, he started backpedaling. Well, I was just a, a term of affection. No, I said, no, that does not work for me. You will not talk to my wife that way. How much more Jesus who gave his blood for his bride. Come on, we need to we need to agree with Jesus what he says about his bride. His one sacrifice has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. They're in the process, but the power of perfecting is in the sacrifice. And every crooked, weak Christian In the world, that sacrifice is efficient and is effective for. And what our part is, look, our part is not to go, you suck. Come on. What's up? Get going. Our part is to say, you know what? Jesus made this sacrifice for you. And it will work for you just like it does for Billy Graham or anybody else. And encourage them. And breathe life into them. And blow on the flame. And don't crush the reed that's bent over. And don't blow out the wick that's smoldering. But get it back into flame. Come on. That's what we do. We help each other to burn. This is how it spreads. And so I'm totally. I'm exposing my own sin before you. Because that's my tendency in the natural. I have all of this passion about. God I want all that you have. But he's like. This isn't, I'm going to close with this when we do communion. The Lord gave me an example. He said, if you're passing out ice cream or marshmallows and you spill a little bit on somebody, it's not a big deal. I can wipe it off. He said, but if you're dealing with fire and you slip and that pours on somebody, you can damage them or kill them. He goes, you need to be really careful how you deal with my word and what you say to people in my body. I'm just telling you about how it was in the woodshed for me so that you can avoid going there yourself. Listen, Jesus loves. He loves his bride. He loves his bride. He gave his lifeblood for his bride.